Good morning. Take your Bibles, if you would. God's very holy, perfect, precious, powerful, clear, authoritative revelation of himself to us and turn there to Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. We've been in a section of Colossians, what we might call In the third chapter, the third section, after God has dealt with our private sins of our heart and then dealt with how he wants the church to function, he has turned his focus onto his followers' marriages, his followers' home, families, and today, his followers' work so that all function in their individual roles within that to magnify him most. You'll notice in each of verses 18 and 19, a couplet, 20 and 21, a couplet, and now 22 through chapter 4, verse 1, a third couplet, which are all the complementary combinations of relationships that God wants every follower in whatever place he has, as a husband or a wife if married, as a parent or a child in a family, and today as bondservants and masters or workers and leaders in the work world, to particular obedience, depending on which of those fits us. All are mutually hard, impossible for us to keep. All equally require Christ to be at work in our hearts in order for them to happen. Well, today, God continuing to focus on the home because... In the Roman Empire, many, many homes or households uh, had slaves or servants within them. God now broadens to that aspect of the home or the household. It's estimated that as many as one-third to one-half of the population in the first century, tens of millions, we can say, fell into this class of bondservants, or as the New American translates it, slaves. Well, we Americans have horrific images of slavery, slavery based largely on racism. In that day, it was a very different, uh, though difficult, relationship. Being a bondservant there sometimes happened because of an agreement to pay off debt that an individual or his family might have toward uh, someone else. Sometimes it was the way to make restitution for a serious crime that was committed. Sometimes people were born into a family that were slaves. Sometimes it was the best way for a family, a particularly poor family, to make it in the world. Sometimes prisoners of war, rather than rotting in cells and camps, were put to work within families. So lots of different scenarios there that would have been different than the way that our nation has experienced it. Some of those were equally cruel and vicious, but many of them were probably better than that. But at the same time, we can say vastly different from what you and I are experiencing. Uh, Many cases of terribly abusive mistreatment but many other where there was very familial feel to being a servant within 
a household or a home or a family. Um, so how do we bring a passage like this that doesn't have exactly the same uh, things as family and marriage has the last couple of years to us? It's certainly not identical. We want to be clear. In most cases, it was far harder, far harder to be a bondservant than uh, for you and me when we think about employment and work and the way that we serve others. We are not likely to be owned by somebody else, another human. We're likely to own things. We're likely to be paid. We're likely to have choices about what we do for a living or what we do for work. But the fact that these bondservants didn't doesn't change the principles that God gives for them. And it's interesting to perhaps our surprise, God doesn't call for or condemn or call for the abandoning of this practice. He simply chooses to focus instead on teaching those who did believe in him in either of these roles how he wanted them to function going forward in Christ. Maybe the clearest explanation of this is by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, beginning in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 7, let each person lead the life that God has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Next slide if we can go there. And if not, you might turn there. We have a few more verses from 1 Corinthians 7 to look at. And Paul then goes into an example in verses 18 and 19 of if you're circumcised when you come to Christ or if you're uncircumcised, it doesn't matter. You don't need to change that. But in the next set of verses, verses 21 to 23, he deals with a second example, and that is being bondservants. So, beginning in verse 20, he says, again, same thing he said back in verse 17. Each one should remain in the condition to which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called or when saved, when God came into your life? Were you a bondservant? Do not be concerned about it. In other words, accept it. Then, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So it seems to be, don't let it be your focus. Don't make it your driving thing. If God would bring circumstances that would allow you to be free, go for it. Four, here's the point, verse 22, and he's spiritually speaking here. He who is called, all those who are saved in the Lord, are saved as a bondservant, but we're a free man in the Lord. Likewise, reversally, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. So he's simply saying we're both slaves when we come to Christ and we're servants. Verse 21 drives home the point, you were bought with a price. That's why you're a bondservant of Christ. Do not become bondservants of men. Seek to stay free. So brothers, summary statement, same thing he said in verse uh, 17 and 20. Whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. But what we can see here in Colossians 3 is that there's a lot more instruction for the bondservant than there was for any other position or any other role that's been addressed here by uh, God through Paul's pen, seeming to indicate 
it was a particularly difficult and challenging position for Christians to be in and still respond righteously. But God puts the focus on not changing the circumstances, but changing one's heart, changing one's attitude, changing one's perspective. And I think what's really helpful here is to realize this letter was not written by a man who was walking around free. This was written from a prison cell. This is written by Paul as he sat confined, bonded by a different sort of meaning, but still the same. And we don't see him expending physical or mental energy to get free, even though in our minds, he's going to be a lot more effective free than sitting in a prison. Instead, God gives him a ministry in that and calls him to be faithful to it. And so for us as well, uh, we can see here that slavery is not going to be the focus, but the issue, the primary concern of God is the response of the heart within that. Now, before we pray and dig into Colossians, I thought it might be helpful just to take a quick helicopter tour because it's kind of remarkable how often God addresses bond servants and slaves in his word in the New Testament. So we have this Colossians passage. Of course, we're going to go into Ephesians 6, just a couple of pages over. Your path back to that book may be well-worn because there's so many parallels to Colossians. And for context here, this is, again, right after family in Ephesians 6 and right before the armor of God and spiritual warfare. And what I tried to do on the screen was gray what Colossians is going to talk about and bring out in the black more of what's unique about that passage that isn't addressed in Colossians, just so you can see a fuller counsel of God regarding being in service or being a servant. So in Ephesians 6, lots of overlap with Colossians, a few unique nuances. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. I think that's a great little phrase or line to note that does, isn't worded quite the same way in Colossians. Then very much like Colossians, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or is free. And then the only other passage that deals with masters is Ephesians 6, very, very similar to what he writes in Colossians 3. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both your master, their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. When Paul writes to his two protégés, Timothy and Titus, he brings out some very different instruction to both of them that's just helpful to keep in our minds as we look at Colossians. In Titus 2, verses 9 and 10, God has Paul write this, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. No instruction to masters. 
In Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes this, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. And then Peter also takes up the call and goes a very different route from Paul, tying the servant role very much to a suffering role. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So, broad picture of God's words to an instruction and teaching to bond servants. He talks to them a lot, gives them lots of different angles and perspectives and ways to think about their role. We'll today keep our focus primarily in Colossians. Just thought it was helpful for you to see how Colossians fits in to the bigger picture of God's words in the New Testament. Let's pause now and ask for God's help to rightly understand and apply these words for his glory. I'm going to use the prayer of Thomas Cranmer, who was in the Reformation, burned at the stake, who prayed this about 500 years ago. And it's no different for us today. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So beginning in verse 22, and where the last few Sundays we've taken two verses, we're now trying to take about five or six and cover all of these but God is going to weave his way back and forth in here. First of all, very similar word to what children were called to, and that was obedience in everything. Only now it's not to a father and mother who deeply love that child, but to a master. Whether there is love there or affection or fondness or kindness or not, the call still is obedience in everything that you possibly can. So again... As long as it's not sinning against God, as long as it is not going against God and his word, if so, we must have the same attitude as the apostles did in Acts 5 when they were told to shut up and not evangelize. We must obey God, not man. And the call here is in everything, meaning in the things you hate doing or are hard for you, the ones you enjoy. The ones that don't seem fulfilling, menial, lowly, or those that do, it shouldn't make a difference in your desire to obey and carry out what you're called to do. 
But now God adds conditions to that obedience, tries to emphasize some things particularly that don't and that do please him. So first of all, uh, very much like with husbands and fathers, there was a negative or a don't, there is here as well. Your obedience should not be by way of eye service as people pleasers. Or the New American translates this external surface. In other words, putting on some kind of exterior, uh, outwardly activity, perhaps to impress someone, to look good to someone, a master, to avoid getting in trouble from that master. Our work ethic is not to vary according to whether we're being watched. Kids, that's a good one for you in the context of your home and your obedience as well. Whether or not it's graded, how well you'll be paid or rewarded for it, how important the person you're doing the work for is to you. God calls us not to be human-centered. Who is around or who will find out about what we're doing should not have an effect on the quality and the quantity of our work and our effort. Or a couple of swings at this. The ones who can be seen by us, the humans, must not be a greater influence on us than the one we cannot see. And the ones who can see some of our work, but not our hearts at all, must not be a greater influence on us than the one who sees all externally and internally and judges all of it divinely. Instead, verse 22 goes on, we're to work with and obey with a sincerity, a realness, a genuineness, an earnestness of heart. And we're gonna see why. What will give us that earnestness is the Lord, not the human being. But what people see of you should be consistent with what they don't see of you because your heart is genuine and sincere in all, in both cases. And all that's driven at the end of verse 22 with or by fearing the Lord, recognizing and having a great reverence for the one who can see all things, who knows all things, who discerns them even better than we can. The fear of the Lord, as Proverbs tells us, is the very beginning of us being wise Workers, wise citizens, wise employees, fulfilling God's purposes. 1 Peter 1.17 uh, has, I think, a great way to think of it. We call on him who is our heavenly father, and yet attached to that is, that's the same one who judges impartially according to what each one, uh, each one's deeds And so we are to conduct ourselves with a fear or a reverence or a holy sense of God is watching all of this. Understanding God cares even more than we do, sees it all even better than we do, and will respond accordingly as verse 24 will go, or 25 will go on to tell us. Now, verse 23, God seems to just circle back and basically say the same thing. So you can see, I tried to parallel whatever in verse 23 seems to match with in everything in verse 22. Work heartily in verse 23 really seems to be a summary of sincerity of heart in verse 22. As for the Lord in verse 23 seems to parallel fearing the Lord in verse 22. 
and not for men in verse 23 seems to be similar to in verse 22, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. So the call here, as he reiterates, and you'll notice the word whatever, and if you look, look back at verse 17, that Mount Everest in these commands in chapter 3, that whatever we do, everything that we do is to be done in the name of the Lord. This is that same idea. All-encompassing, whatever it is that you're doing with your hands, your mouth, your mind, whatever it is, put yourself heartily, fully into whatever it is that you are tasked to do. Have that mindset of, Lord, I do this for you, so I do it to the fullest of my ability because I want to please you. Just a reminder here, there's so many things in our life that we can do less than heartily for the Lord. There's many things we can get by with a less than full effort. And there are many things that we have to do in life, and changing dirty diapers is one example of that that seem to have no significance to anybody else at all that might know about it or be watching. But God's call here is a Christian employee or student or athlete, or you can fill in the blank, should be the hardest workers because we're working for a master, a boss, that is vastly greater, bigger, and more reverent for us to look at than a human master. Sam Storms, there is something inherently spiritual in all that a Christian does, whether that be the digging of a ditch, the preaching of a sermon, or the changing of a diaper. It is for Christ that we work. It is from Christ that the reward will come. Now, I, when I was teaching, and in the master position, tried so hard to convince students of this, and I don't think I succeeded very often. But I'm not sure I didn't convince their parents either. Because Colossians 3.2 is so hard for us. Colossians 3.2 is, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. But when it comes to this area of work, we so easily put our focus onto what's going to be the result. What am I going to get paid? What's going to be the accolades? What's going to be the reward? What's going to make it worth it for me to work? And I will work according to what I think that will be. It was extremely hard to convince students that it mattered most to God how hard they worked on a paper with the ability God had given them, not the grade they got as a result. That in God's eyes, a C can be far more pleasing than an A+. Depending upon what's been done and why and how. So, just a reminder here, and God is going to press it in, beginning in verse 24, that there are bigger things that we are investing our lives in and our work and our efforts than simply earthly benefits and rewards as a result. Verse 24 just reminds us of something that was already laid out in verse 12 of chapter 1. So way back at the beginning of the letter, last part of Paul's prayer is that our hearts are to be overflowing with thanksgiving and gratitude to God because he has already qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And that's entirely without our works, entirely because of faith in him and grace from him. So he's simply reminding us here, you are going to receive an inheritance as your reward, and that inheritance 
no matter how lowly your work, no matter how meaningless or insignificant, no matter how poorly you're treated in it, no matter how poor your reward here on earth, is ultimately gonna blow you away with its glory. Peter tried to capture a little of this when he opened his first letter. Blessed praise be to God, Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. So he goes immediately from the cross in the past and the resurrection immediately to the inheritance in the future. That is imperishable, undefiled, perfect, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And now he describes this as being guarded by God's power through faith until that all is in God's timing, ready to be revealed. God's payday or reward day or inheritance day that is coming. And now God puts it all together at the tail end or the second part of verse 24. It's short, but immensely important and immensely helpful if we can get our minds fully directed in this truth. You are serving in whatever you're being asked to do by human employers, masters, bosses, coaches, teachers, leaders. You are serving in the midst of that. Not them, but the Lord Christ. I just want to note here, if you go back to verse 17, we made a big deal out of the name of the Lord Jesus. And here, slight name change, the Lord Christ. But both of them focusing on the name that we are to devote ourselves and everything in us to. So God's call here is quit focusing on humans making you do such and such that's not actually who you are working for and realize that you're going to get a far greater recompense, infinitely greater in the end. So technically, when someone asks you, what do you do? Answer, I serve the Lord Christ. It's as simple as that. Now, I may do it through working for X, doing X, but all of this, ultimately, I bypass those things and I bypass this to say I'm working for this far greater master, the Lord. And that then makes our our work become our worship so that we're working as a way of saying, this, Lord, is for you. In light of all you've given me, all you've done for me, spiritually as well as in this life physically, this is my expression of praise to you. That's why Peter, again, in his letter, says that whoever is serving, and it can seem like really menial menial tasks, you serve, you do those things by the strength, by the gifts, by the grace of God that he supplies, and here's why he gives it to us. So that in everything, all of our serving, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. So such, this concept of serving the Lord is such a heavy theme. Let me just race us through some of these concepts. Deuteronomy 10, in the the law of Moses, serve, earlier it was love the Lord with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Here it is, Serve the Lord, equating our love for the Lord translates into serving the Lord with all of our heart, 
Remember the sincerity of heart in Colossians 3 and with all of your soul. Joshua 24, as they are ready to head into the, or uh, settle in the promised land. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Not just worship the Lord, love the Lord, belong to the Lord, but to serve him. Psalm 100 opens with it. We often skim past it because we use it for musical praise. But make a joyful noise, and while you're making a joyful noise, serve the Lord with gladness. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul describes salvation as the Thessalonians turning from idols to, and you might, we expect him to say, to faith in the Lord. And he speaks of it, he encapsulates that by saying, serving the Lord. Uh, Paul often spoke of himself as a servant. Romans 1.1 opens. The very opening words of Romans are Paul, and where he often first says apostle, He's got it there, but first, I identify myself as a servant of Christ Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 4.1, this is how one should regard us, he's talking about being apostles there, as servants of Christ. Ephesians 6, 5-9, the section we read earlier that we won't reread, but just want you to see in there that we are to serve as bondservants of Christ himself not of a human master. And then Peter, in 1 Peter 2, after describing us as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's people, sojourners and exiles, Peter adds one more description, and that is we're servants of God, and in the midst of the incredible freedom from sin that God has given us, we're not to go into more sin, but we're to devote our lives to living as servants of his. John Piper, this is not a marginal issue. We're talking about what it means to be a Christian moment by moment in real life. Now, Piper goes on to point to Matthew 6, 24. I think he has a good word about it, so let's just take a moment. Where, it said, where Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. We just can't. Over time, one will be one we'll devote our hearts much more toward. And it will either be, in this example, God or money. But we can put all kinds of other things in there as well. But Piper makes this distinction. You serve money by calculating all your plans. See if this is in America. Calculating all your plans, your efforts, to benefit from what money promises you. Your life revolves around trying to put yourself in the position of the greatest benefit from money. It's messing with us a little bit, isn't it? That's also what it means to serve God, he goes on. You serve God by calculating all your plans and all your efforts to benefit from all the God promises to be for you. Your life revolves around trying to put yourself under the waterfall of God's greatest blessing, positioning yourself for the greatest benefit God has to give, namely himself. So I think for us Americans, though we're not bond servants in the meaning here, we can certainly see that as employees or just as citizens, we can easily serve money. We can easily serve our occupation, our vocation, find our identity in that, find our fulfillment in that, and lose sight of what we're ultimately about as Christ's servant. John Eady puts the perspective, I think, in well. Your masters on earth have no absolute right over you. The shekels they may have paid for you can only give them power over your bodies, your time, and your labor. 
but the Lord has bought you with his blood and has therefore an indefeasible claim to your homage and service. So perhaps as you roll out of bed each morning, endeavor to earnestly pray, Lord, today in all I do, I'm serving you. Every bit of my exertion of mind and body, which you're giving me totally by your grace, is meant to honor you in your name for what you have done for me. And we could add, for what you're going to do, your reward of you is all the reward that I need. I think that's the mindset God is pushing for us here in these commands and motivations. Now, verse 25 is a bit of a conundrum. Um, there's debate about who's the wrongdoer. And if you think about the reward in verse 24 and this paying back, you can see how that might refer to the bondservants that have been talked about up to this point. But the no partiality at the end of verse 25 seems to tie in well with the justice and fairness in chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, obviously, the people who put in chapter breaks, I'm so curious about why this break was put right here and not after 4-1, why there wasn't a 26th verse in chapter 3. Uh, but regardless of that, they see it as belonging more to the bondservants, think a strong case be made for that, but also think that it could equally apply to both. Meaning, if servants choose a different response than what verses 24 to 20. Uh, 22 to 25 call for that dishonor gods or if masters choose a different response than what verse 1 of chapter 4 calls for that dishonors God God doesn't merely overlook that or excuse it all of our sinful responses were held responsible for and have consequences even though we're not condemned by them there will be an effect in our lives Galatians 6 a verse we looked at often is very fitting don't be deceived don't fool yourself don't believe lies and myths. God is not mocked as a judge. He will see sovereignly that whatever one sows, that he will also reap. God is watching both master and servant, or those in the position of serving others and those in the position of having others serve them. And both ultimately will answer to him. In the end, God promises justice will be done. And until then, we will likely see much injustice but are not to be a part of it. And the closing of the verse is just a reminder of the nature, God's perfect nature of no partiality, no favoritism. God won't favor masters because of their position. He won't favor bondservants out of pity for their position. It won't depend on how good your inner lawyer seems to be when you stand before God or how good a lawyer you hire when you stand before God if you think you can. It doesn't matter if you're better at finger-pointing, justifying, rationalizing, and blame-shifting. It doesn't matter in front of God. God will perfectly discern justice between a master and a servant, a boss and a worker, no matter how complicated the nuances of that relationship may be. That's both an encouraging truth and a terrifying one. And then he finishes in chapter 4, verse 1, with addressing briefly, but very uh, intentionally the last group the masters which could well be the same men in 318 and of 320 uh, or 21 or just speaking of those in charge of a slave so it could be the whole family and just how they treat 
they're bondservants. Whether they're believers or not, whether they're good workers or not, whether they're the best slaves they've had or not, they are to treat them justly and fairly. The most obvious application for us, because we don't own people, not even our own children, would be any kind of a leadership, being over people, having people work for us, serve us in that capacity. Perhaps we own a business that has people under our authority and all of the ways that we're setting up the culture of that uh, and treating people, God is calling for justice and fairness in that. But I want to challenge you perhaps to think that there are at least moments within your days where you function in this capacity if you think of the broad category of the service industry. So yes, we are paying people to do a service for us, and sometimes we think that gives us the right to really malign them. But they do work for us. They do serve us. They wait on us at our restaurants and cook our food for us. They clean our homes or other parts of our homes or cars. They wash them. They fix them. They entertain us. There's all kinds of ways in which throughout a day we function in a role that has other people serving us. And so God is emphasizing anytime that you have somebody serving you, be careful to treat them fairly. Never take advantage of them. Never look down on them. Never treat them as if you are above them. Don't hold them to a higher standard. We talked about that with our children last week. Jesus and Peter both warned about lording any kind of a sense over other people. That might be the, by the demands you put on them. It might be by the pay or the rewards or the tip that you give them. It might be by how you treat them while they are serving you. Some of us, in moments in our week, when we don't like the way we're being served, aren't very good masters. And the reminder here is, you better know, you better never forget, never lose sight. No matter how big of a master you are, how big of a leader you are, you have a far greater master in heaven that you are going to answer to. No man, no matter how great here on earth or how powerful or however what, is autonomous from God's authority over him. So don't let that go to your head. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Don't lose sight of the reality that you too are a servant of Christ. Everyone in Christ is a servant far more than we are ever a master or an authority. So Micah 6.8 is not written to masters, but it's a good word for masters. What's good? What does the Lord require of those who follow him? Do justice. That's what Colossians 4.1 is pressing. Be just. Love kindness. And walk humbly with your God. God meant what he said back in Colossians 3.11. That in his eyes and in the church, in Christendom, in the kingdom of God, there is no differentiation between slave and free. Christ is all and in all. And in Galatians 3.28, it's a very similar thought. There's not slave nor free. You're all one in Christ Jesus. That little phrase we, I think, have all heard. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level 
for believers at the Lord's table, in his church, and in the kingdom. The things that make such a big difference to a godless society make no difference amongst God's people. So don't look at anyone in the church and identify them as more significant, more important, more authoritative, more whatever, or less than anyone else, for we all belong to Christ. So if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know where we're going to land this plane, right? Same principles of sanctification in the gospel. Oh, thank you for that slide. I just think this is cool, amazing. So uh, we're going over time just for this short little look. Where am I? If I can find it. There it is. Seven times in here, the Lord is referenced. I made a brief mention of that back when we were first starting it. I just want to really highlight it now, now that we've walked through it. Wives, submitting to your husbands is fitting in the Lord. Children, obeying your parents pleases the Lord. Verse 22, servants or employees or those who work for others, obedience to our human authorities out of reverence for the Lord. We are to see ourselves as serving the Lord. We're to work heartily for the Lord. We're to trust that there's an inheritance from the Lord. We are to serve not humans, but the Lord. And masters should be just and fair because they have a master who is just and fair. So God just begins to really weave his name throughout all of this. uh, That the point being that Christ is to be, as Lord, the center of our homes, our families, our work world, all of the things that we do where maybe we aren't around other believers, perhaps we are, but functioning in ways that honor him. So those who work for others, find your perfect example to emulate in Christ. Mark 10, 45 tells us directly, the son of man, who's the greatest of all, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I just want to encourage you to behold the glory of Christ serving you. See how low the Lord Jesus goes for you, all the way to the cross. Behold the glory of him in that servile submission, and pray daily for God to make you more like he is through the power of the gospel. For those of you who have others working for them, for those of us, may we see Christ as our perfect example to emulate. May we see him as our heavenly master and yet taking his place on the cross for us. May we realize how kind and good he is to us, treating us far better than we deserve. May the gospel humble us as authorities over others, and may we go and do like our Savior has done for us. And then, just reminders as we come to the Lord's table now, that both those who serve and those who serve are served have to find their forgiveness in Christ, in the cross, and in the body and the blood of Christ shed for us. We're going to receive together the bread and the cup, which is Jesus' body and blood given for us, for our sin, an incredible love, grace, and mercy. 
the last six commands in verses 18 of chapter 3 through verse 1 of chapter 4 have shown many of us our many sins and failures. But what God is doing in this is turning our hearts toward him and even deeper into the good news about him. Chad Bird says this, shared this with you before, but think fitting here. Christians are never weaned off the gospel, never. Jesus is our milk, our soft food, our solid food, our every meal, no matter where we are in our growth as Christians. He alone is our meat and drink throughout our lives. As long as you are in this life, you will fall flat on your face again and again when you try to live a life of obedience. And lying flat on your face, you will discover that you have landed not on hard ground, but on the crucified body of Jesus. Eye to eye with him, even now at the table, face to face with your Savior. He will stand you up in his arms. He will clean you up, wash you, forgive you, and lead you onward to his table to feed you once more himself. In the bulletin, you have a number of other focuses for this time that I would encourage you to take advantage of. John Calvin puts it this way, the supper, the Lord's table, bears special witness to the fact that our God helps us when we are, so to speak, halfway home. He seeks to move us further on so that we are always looking to him. And since we are fully persuaded of our weakness and frailty, since we do not have all that is required, let us ask God to strengthen us and lead us forward to increase our faith and our hope of the heavenly life. May we long for it with all our powers and may each strive and toil, not in his own strength, but in the strength which God supplies. He will not fail.